Welcome to The Church is the World, Chapter 2, Episode 15, the fourth of several parts concerning the Sumerians. Last week, I covered what is called the early dynastic period of the Sumerians. If you missed it, you really should go back and give it a listen. And in the last week, I've gotten a cold and I'm a little hoarse. So if I sound a little bit different this week, well, now you know why. This episode begins when the Akkadians show up. As I covered in previous episodes, the Sumerians were indirectly mentioned in Genesis chapter 10 due to their association with the city of Uruk. But to be specific, in verse 10, the New International Version lists the city of Uruk, spelled U-R-U-K, while both the New Revised Standard Version and the King James list it as Eric, spelled E-R-E-C-H. I should have mentioned this a few episodes ago, probably when I covered Leonard Woolley, and how many people before his discovery considered the city to have existed only in myth, and this belief may have led to the different spellings and pronunciations. Today I'm covering the Akkadians, as well as the Gutians. They were mentioned in the same chapter of Genesis in verse 8. That verse reads, Cush became the father of Nimrod. He was the first on earth to become a mighty warrior. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, and Akkad, all of them in the land of Shinar. So let's get started. To review the last episode, the early dynastic period, which ran from about 2900 to 2300 BC, saw a subtle shift from a priest-king to a more modern-day concept of king, known as a lugal, loosely translated as the phrase big man. The various city-states of Sumer during this time fought each other for control of the arable land and irrigation water until the rise of the first dynasty of Lagash in about 2500 BC. Under their king Eantuam, Lagash became the center of a small empire which included most of Sumer and parts of neighboring Elam. This empire existed through King Lugalzagi in about 2300 BC, when a young man seized the throne. This young man would become known as Sargon the Great of Akkad. As you probably could have guessed, Sargon was an Akkadian, which was a Semitic group of desert nomads who eventually settled in Mesopotamia, just north of Sumer. The Sumerian king Lugalzagasi tried to form a coalition of Sumerian city-states against Sargon, but he was defeated by the Akkadians. Sargon is considered by many to be the first empire builder. He made Akkad the capital city of his empire. The existence of Akkad is known only from textual sources. Its location has not yet been identified, although scholars have proposed a number of different sites. Most recent proposals point to a location east of the Tigris. In my mind, Akkad is waiting on its Leonard Woolley. The earliest records in the Akkadian language date to the time of Sargon. Sargon defeated and captured Lugozagasi in what has become known as the Battle of Uruk. Sargon was said to have been the son of La Ibum, a humble gardener, and his mother was a priestess to Ishtar or Inanna. One legend told of Sargon in Assyrian times said that, she bore him in secret, and then set him in a basket of rushes, sealing its lid with tar. She set him in a river which carried him to Aki, their god of water. Aki took him in as his son and reared him. Aki also appointed him as his gardener. 
Later claims made on behalf of Sargon were that his mother was a high priestess. These claims might have been made to ensure that he was thought of as nobility, considering only a highly placed family can be made into a king. Sargon, in other sources, was originally a cupbearer to a king of Kish with a Semitic name, Ura-Zababa. Sargon then became a gardener, responsible for the task of clearing out irrigation canals. This gave him access to a disciplined corps of workers, who may have also served as his first soldiers. This job also taught him how to organize men into a force. Somehow, he displaced Ura-Zababa and was crowned king, then entering a career of foreign conquest. He invaded Syria and Canaan four times, and spent three years thoroughly subduing the countries of what was considered the West, uniting them with Mesopotamia and forming a single empire. Then, Sargon took this process further, conquering many of the surrounding regions to create an empire that reached westward as far as the Mediterranean Sea and perhaps the island of Cyprus. It also went north as far as the mountains, probably meaning Anatolia in modern-day Turkey. The kingdom went east into Elam, in present-day southwestern Iran on the Persian Gulf, and as far south as Megan, probably in present-day Oman, on the extreme southeastern tip of the Arabian Peninsula, at the confluence of the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean. But the exact location of Megan is unknown, and some researchers have suggested other areas. Either way, his empire was large, even by today's standards. Overall, he consolidated his power over these territories by replacing the earlier opposing rulers with noble citizens of Akkad, his native city, therefore ensuring the loyalty of the rulers of these far-flung territories. During the Akkadian Empire, trade extended from the silver mines of Anatolia to the jewel mines in Afghanistan, the cedars of Lebanon, and the copper of Magan. This consolidation of the city-states of Sumer and Akkad reflected the growing economic and political power of Mesopotamia. The empire's breadbasket was the rain-fed agricultural system of northern Mesopotamia, protected by a system of fortresses built to control the imperial wheat production. Images of Sargon were erected on the shores of the Mediterranean as memorials to his military victories. Some of the earliest historiographic texts suggest he rebuilt the city of Babylon in a new location near Akkad. Sargon, throughout his life, is thought to have worshipped the Sumerian deities, particularly Ishtar and Zababah, the warrior god of Kish. He is said to have called himself the anointed priest of Anu and the greatest priest of Enlil. But internal strife grew towards the end of his reign, with a later Babylonian text stating that all the lands revolted against him, and they surrounded him in Akkad. He then attacked them in a battle and defeated them, destroying their great army. The same text refers to his campaign in Elam, where he defeated a coalition army led by the king of Awan, where he forced the defeated leaders to become his servants. This was followed by another revolt where the mountainous tribes of Assyria attacked, but they too were defeated. Afterwards, Sargon punished them greatly. Sargon was an excellent military commander, organizing his army into different units, including donkey-drawn war chariots. These were used to scare and trample his enemies. Now, it's hard for me to imagine anything being drawn by a donkey to be intimidating. But then again, my perspective is modernly skewed. Many other members of his family have made a mark on history. Sargon's daughter, Enhiduanna, 
was the world's first credited author because she signed her name to a set of poems she apparently wrote about her gods and goddesses. Sargon's son and grandson ruled after him, but eventually the Akkadian Empire fell and was replaced by the third dynasty of Ur. The Akkadian Empire collapsed in 2154 BC, within 180 years of its founding, ushering in what is known as a Dark Age, meaning that the history of the period is pretty much unknown. There was a regional decline that lasted until the rise of the third dynasty of Ur in 2112 BC. Backing up a bit, by the end of the reign of Sargon's great-grandson, Shar Kaliasharia, the empire had weakened, and there was a period of anarchy between 2192 and 2168 BC. Shudurul, who ruled from 2168 to 2154 BC, appears to have restored some centralized authority. However, he was unable to prevent the empire eventually collapsing outright from the invasion of barbarian peoples from the Zargos Mountains, known as the Gutians, leading to what has been creatively dubbed the Gutian period. After the fall of the Akkadian Empire, the Akkadian people of Mesopotamia eventually merged into two major Akkadian-speaking nations, with Assyria in the north and a few centuries later Babylonia in the south. I'll cover both of these in the future. The Sumerian king list reinforces the history, describing the Akkadian Empire after the death of Sharkalisharia, as such that Uruk was smitten with weapons and its kingship carried off by the Gutian hordes. Little is known about the Gutian period, or how long it even lasted. Cuneiform tablets suggest that they showed little concern for maintaining agriculture, written records, or public safety. In this regard, it is probably fair to characterize them as barbarians. It has been suggested that they released all livestock to roam about Mesopotamia freely, and that practice, along with others, soon brought about famine and soaring grain prices. But if you will pardon the pun, they may have been scapegoated. The decline apparently coincided with a severe drought, possibly connected with climatic changes reaching all across the area from Egypt to Greece. The climate is part of our international discourse today, and it was no doubt a large part of such dialogue for the Sumerians and Akkadians, too. Recent research has suggested that the decline at the end of the Akkadian period was associated with a rapidly increasing drought, owing to the lack of rain in the region being associated with a global, century-long period of drought. Around 2200 BC, following a theorized volcanic eruption, a distinct decrease in rain with a possible increase in wind circulation caused a considerable decrease in agriculture. This drought did not only impact Mesopotamia, but evidence of it has also been found in Egypt, Spain, China, North America, and even in caves in Italy. After four centuries of urban and a prosperous period for the region, this drought may have contributed to the collapse of the Akkadian Empire. It may also be the reason the Gutians descended from the mountains. In addition, it was at this time that the Old Kingdom, which will be covered later, collapsed in Egypt, and the Longshans declined in China. It truly was a global event. Evidence from Tel Lelan, located in northern Mesopotamia and in present-day extreme northeastern Syria, near the border with Turkey and Iraq, indicates what may have occurred. This site was abandoned soon after the city's massive walls were constructed, its temple reconstructed, and its grain production reorganized. The debris, dust, and sand that follows show no trace of human activity at all, 
Soil samples show fine windblown sand, no indication of earthworm activity, reduced rainfall, and indications of a drier and windier climate. Evidence shows that sheep and cattle starved to death, and up to 28,000 people abandoned the site, looking for food and water elsewhere. Telbrak, a similar city, shrank in size by 75%. Their trade collapsed. Nomadic herders, such as the Amorites, moved their herds away, obviously preferring to be closer to reliable water supplies, which also brought them into conflict with the Akkadian populations. This collapse of rain-fed agriculture in the northern part of the empire also meant that the southern area, which was already drier, would suffer too. Water levels within the Tigris and Euphrates rivers fell an estimated 5 feet, or 1.5 meters lower than the level of 2600 BC. Keep in mind that the rivers were not terribly deep to begin with, and this represented a drastic reduction in water volume. As would be expected, especially in an agricultural economy, these conditions led to a severe economic depression, which coincided with the collapse of the Akkadians and the rise of the Gutians. But back to the history. The last Gutian king, Tarragon, was driven out by a Sumerian king, with some sources citing Ur-Nammu, who ruled from 2112 to 2095 BC. This began what has been called the Sumerian Renaissance. The third dynasty of Ur arose sometime after the fall of the Akkadians, but the date of the transition is unclear. The period between the last powerful king of the Akkad dynasty, Sherkali Shari, and the first king of the third dynasty, Ur-Nammu, is not well documented. On the king list, Sherkali Shari is followed by two more kings of Akkad and six in Uruk. However, there are no specific years given, nor any discovered artifacts confirming that any of these reigns were actually historical. Well, with the exception of one artifact for Dudu of Akkad, who is Sher Kalishari's immediate successor on the list. Ur Namu, who was originally a military commander, apparently founded the Third Dynasty of Ur, but the precise events surrounding his rise are unclear. It is possible and has been suggested that Ur Namu was originally the governor of the region. There's two stone slabs discovered in Ur that state that Ur Namu was the governor. Some scholars theorize that Ur-Namu led a revolt, deposing a ruler whose name I'm not going to bother with, and seized control of the region through force. Another hypothesis is that Ur-Namu was a close relative to he that shall not be named. Either way, after four years of ruling Ur, Ur-Namu rose to prominence as a warrior king when he crushed the ruler of Lagash in battle, killing the king himself. After this battle, Ur-Namu seems to have earned the title King of Sumer and Agade. It was also during this period that documents again began to be written in Sumerian, although Sumerian was becoming a purely literary or liturgical language, similar to the evolution of Latin in medieval Europe. Ur's dominance over the Neo-Sumerian Empire was consolidated with the legendary Code of Ur-Namu, most likely the first such law code for Mesopotamia since that of Uro-Kajina of Lagash centuries earlier. I'm always interested in these early laws, as they provide some insight into the society at the time. Of course, that leads me to wonder what future archaeologists will think of us, especially with our volumes and volumes of tax code that even we don't understand. Anyway, a little on the code of Ur-Namu itself. It is recognized that earlier law codes existed, such as the previous covered Code of Ur-Gajina, but the Code of Ur-Namu represents the earliest extant legal text. 
It is about 300 years older than the Code of Hammurabi. The laws are arranged in the form of if-then statements, such as, if a man commits murder, then that man must be killed. This pattern is followed in nearly all later codes. For the oldest extant law code known to history, it is considered remarkably advanced, primarily because it institutes fines and monetary compensation for bodily damage, instead of the later eye-for-an-eye principle seen in Babylonian law. But murder, robbery, adultery, and rape were punishable by death. The code reveals a glimpse into the structure of the society during the so-called Sumerian Renaissance. At the top was the king, followed by free people, then the slaves. There were many laws, and I'm not going to recite all of them. If you want to read them all, they aren't terribly difficult to find. But I will touch on a few of the more interesting ones. For example, if a man knocks out the eye of another man, he shall pay half a mina of silver. Of course, this begs that we attempt to quantify what half a mina of silver was actually worth. One mina was worth 60 shekels, and one shekel was about 8.3 grams, meaning that a mina was about 500 grams. As of today, a gram of silver is worth about half a U.S. dollar. This means that the knocked-out eye was worth about 250 U.S. dollars. Well, not exactly, because this simple math assumes that the worth of silver has remained constant over the past 4,000 years. Honestly, given the Industrial Revolution and how easy it is to mine and refine silver today, there is little doubt in my mind that it was far more valuable then. So let me draw a parallel. The wise men who visited the manger brought Christ gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is currently going for just north of $1,200 per ounce, but the same amount of frankincense and myrrh can be purchased with a single $20 bill in my pocket, showing that the values of these precious items has changed dramatically over the past few thousand years. But back to the code. If someone severed the nose of another man with a copper knife, he must pay two-thirds of a mina of silver. Now, I don't know how literally these laws were written, but I think that copper was inserted in the law because it was what knives were made of at the time. Otherwise, I would leave my copper knife at home if I intended to commit such a crime, and perhaps use a steel knife. Oh wait, no, that revolution hadn't occurred yet. So, perhaps use a stone tool, or something other than copper. Of course, this was also towards the end of the Bronze Age. And it's also curious that a severed nose was worth more than one eye. Another one stated that if a man divorces his first-time wife, he shall pay her one mina of silver, meaning that this one-time alimony payment was worth two eyes. If it is a former widow whom he divorces, he shall pay her half a mina of silver. If a man appears as a witness and was shown to be a perjurer, he must pay 15 shekels of silver. Slaves, probably because they had no silver, had different punishments assigned. If a man's slave woman, comparing herself to her mistress, and speaks insolently to her, her mouth shall be scoured with one quart of salt. If a slave marries a free person, the slave is to hand the firstborn son over to his owner. It did not mention if the marriage made the slave free, but I really doubt it. And finally, if a man, in the course of a scuffle, smashes the limb of another man with a club, he shall pay one mina of silver, meaning that the limb is worth two eyes, more than a nose, 
and four times more valuable than the penalty for perjury. This points out that societies at the time were centered on manual labor. If you could not work, you would suffer or die. In two weeks, I'll continue with the Sumerian Renaissance. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at thechurchestheworld.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at thechurchestheworld.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase, The Churches the World, as four separate words. Thanks for listening, and have a great two weeks.